Father, we pray as we open your word that it would be so abundantly clear that you would allow us to drink afresh this morning from the well of Jesus. That he would give living water to thirsty tongues in this room. That you would sustain us in our drinking of him. Make it clear as we see him fresh today in your word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to John chapter 4 and verse 1. John 4 and verse 1. John, the writer of this gospel, has been clear with his intentions and everything he writes about. He wants you, the reader, to see Jesus as the Son of God and seeing Jesus the Son of God to believe in him and have life in his name. So throughout this gospel, John records for us various interactions that Jesus has with individuals. And one reason he does this is to show us the diversity of Jesus' interactions. They are not all the same, nor are they with the same types of people. Jesus engages with the rich and the poor, the educated, the non-educated, the, the prominent and the unknown leaders and servants. John wants us to see that no matter who Jesus is talking to, he means to display his glory to them. And so as he does this, we see various individuals respond to Jesus in different ways. Most recently, we saw Jesus engage with Nicodemus, a religious man of authority. He's well known in his community. He comes to Jesus with status, prominence, training, resources. He may not always be liked, but Nicodemus, for the most part, is respected. He's established and sophisticated. His life, at least from the outside looking in, appears to be put together. To many, Nicodemus is a model of morality. But this morning, we're going to witness Jesus interact with another individual. This time, it's a woman. And she is about the exact opposite as you can be from Nicodemus. If others think of Nicodemus as this model of morality, this woman is a picture of promiscuity. She, like Nicodemus, is known in the community, but not for her status, but for the scarlet letter she wears. She's not prominent. She's private. She has to be because of her past. Whereas Nicodemus may walk in superiority, this woman walks in shame. Perhaps the difference in these two is also seen in the fact that Nicodemus is a historical household name. I trust that many of you who have been in church for a while have heard of Nicodemus. While all this woman gets is the title of the woman at the well. We don't even know her name. Need to Breed sings a song entitled Girl Named Tennessee. It's about a man who falls in love with a woman who he doesn't even know her name. But she's from Tennessee, so he just refers to her as the girl named Tennessee. And this woman's story at the well has become so popular in biblical narrative, but still we don't know her name. So we have just simply labeled her based upon where she lives, 
the woman of Samaria. And we see Jesus interact with her today. In fact, we're only going to see part one of the conversation between Jesus and this woman. Lord willing, we'll see the second part next week. What would Jesus have to offer a Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of a field? Well, if you didn't resonate with the high class religious leader of Nicodemus, perhaps you will identify with this woman of shame because of a checkered past. If you were to ask me what my favorite narrative in the Bible is, I would tell you it's this one out of all the Bible. I love this narrative for many reasons. I mean, one, we're going to see Jesus display a masterful class of engagement. Two, we're going to see the heart of Christ for shameful sinners. Three, this narrative will keep you guessing. The narrative takes many unexpected turns and Jesus handles each one with his own twist. Four, there's many evangelism tactics that you and I can learn from this conversation. Five, Jesus takes a sledgehammer to any notion of racism that may sit in our hearts. I love this narrative for all those reasons and many more that I could say. But perhaps my favorite aspect of this narrative is this. This woman is so easy to identify with. In fact, if you and I walk through this narrative and never see yourself as the woman, you're missing the point. Yes, let's marvel at Jesus' engagement with her. Let's be surprised by the plot. Let's learn good evangelism tactics along the way. Let's kill any racism that may be in our heart. All those things are good. But we dare not read this narrative as mere third-party observers looking down in the arena of this woman's life, adding to the scoff directed at her as though we are somehow above her condition. Friends, John wants you to see yourself in this woman. And he wants you to see what Jesus would hold out for her that he holds out for you. What would Jesus have to offer this unrecognized, guilty woman living in shame because of her past? Sound applicable? It should. Look with me, John chapter 4 and verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I want you to see in this first part of the conversation that it's broken down into four parts. First, notice a providential position. A providential position the setting of this narrative is given to us in the first six verses. And look how John sets up this providential position. We see in verse 1 and 2 that the Pharisees are taking notice of Jesus' growing popularity. And Jesus sees that they're taking notice, that he's baptizing more people than John. So verse 3 says, he left Judea and went toward Galilee. Now, why would Jesus leave Judea right when his popularity is starting to grow? I mean, this is not good church growth strategy by Jesus. And we wonder, what is he doing? The people are just now starting to come. Well, verse 1 tells us that he left when he realized that the Pharisees were starting to take notice that he was baptizing more people than John. And there you see John actually says that Jesus didn't baptize anyone, only his disciples did. And we think, well, why does John give us that quick detail? Well, imagine sitting around with your friends talking about your baptism and saying, I was baptized by Peter. And your friends say, well, I was baptized by John. And the other say, well, I was baptized by James. And the other guy says, were you even baptized? I was baptized by Jesus. Perhaps Jesus didn't baptize anyone to prevent anyone from thinking that there were layers of effectiveness in baptism determined by who you were baptized by. But Jesus sees the Pharisees taking notice that he's baptizing more than John and so he leaves. Now why would Jesus care about what the Pharisees think? We're going to see that he doesn't really care what they think, but he does care about the timing at which they think it. They're going to reach a point where they think, let's kill Jesus. And Jesus is simply making sure that the timing happens according to his Father's will. You see, if Jesus becomes too prominent too quickly, 
the Pharisees may want to act before it's their time. So Jesus, knowing this, kind of moves the pot of boiling water off the eye so that the heat will simmer down a little bit to prevent premature boiling over. He leaves Judea. He's getting out of the spotlight and he heads to Galilee. Now the GPS mapping of this is fairly simple. You have Judea in the south and Galilee's in the north. You just take I-85 northbound straight up about three days journey. He'll be there. Seems rather simple. But notice verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, why would John tell us that? I mean, to us, that's not really a big deal. It's like saying, okay, we got to go to Charlotte, and on the way, we got to pass through Gaffney. So what? What's the big deal? Well, you and I know, <laughs> other than the death trap of road construction on the way to Gaffney, it's not a big deal. But leaving Judea for Galilee and passing through Samaria was a big deal if you're a Jew. Why? Well, you don't need a commentary to know why. Look at the end of verse 9. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, we're going to see what all that's about in just a moment. But for now, here John set up this narrative. Jesus is going to Galilee. He's got to pass through Samaria. And all the Jews would have said, gross, good luck. Seriously, you got to go through there? Isn't there another way? And actually, there were other ways. Some Jews would take the scenic or cleaner route in their minds. They would cross over the Jordan River through the east, bypassing in Samaria. Others would veer west, go up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, then head over to Gal uh, Galilee. But overwhelmingly, the most popular and most direct route was not to go east or not go west, but straight up, direct route through Samaria. And notice verse 3, John says, he had to go through Samaria. Now, I think that statement has a twofold meaning. One, he had to from a geographic standpoint. If he wanted to make a direct route in any amount of good time, he had to go through there. But two, he had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment to keep. She didn't know it yet, but there's a woman who has an appointment with Jesus at the well. And Jesus makes all of his plans with this providential encounter in mind. Now notice verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Here we see three details highlighted by John. Jesus comes to a field once owned by the patriarch Jacob. In a field that Jacob gifted his son Joseph. In the field where there's the well that Jacob owned. Now here is a critical question at this point. What's the big deal about this field of Jacob that's given to Joseph that has Jacob's well 
I mean, Jesus could have felt tired and found a big old oak tree to find rest under. Or he could have just gone into the city. Instead, Jesus stops at this precise location that contains some of the richest Old Testament history. Now, I don't have time to turn to each one, but I'll give you the significance of each of these details. In Genesis chapter 33, feel free, feel free to write that down. Genesis 33, after Jacob reunites with Esau, his brother, he buys this very land that Jesus comes to. And then in Genesis chapter 48, when Jacob is on his deathbed, he gifts this very land to his favorite son, Joseph. And then in Joshua chapter 24, when the people are settling in the promised land, they bring the very bones of Joseph and bury him in this very land. See, John sets this encounter up so vividly. Verse six, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, now don't let that bother you. Let that encourage you as a sign of Jesus' true humanity. Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which was about 12 o'clock midday. So watch this. Jesus journeys through Samaria and he chooses to stop in a field owned by the patriarch Jacob, a father of Israel. A field that now holds the bones of Joseph, the golden child of Israel. With Jacob's well right there, a source of water for the people of Israel. And Jesus sits down and waits. He puts his back against the well. He's absorbing the midday sun. And at 12 o'clock, high noon, the king of Israel will have a conversation with a woman whose race is hated by Israel. Do you see the providential positioning set by Jesus? Was it really chance that he would stop in this location? Was it chance that he chose to stop in Sakar? And in Sakar, did he chance that he chose this field and in this field chance that he came to this well and at this well at this time with all the history of Israel sitting underneath him chance that he would meet this woman and reveal himself as the Messiah of Israel was that chance friends Jesus leaves nothing to chance Every word, move, thought, action is under the providential positioning of his sovereign plan. Notice Jesus left the masses to come to one. He steps out of the spotlight in Judea to come to this vacant field. And Jesus had to leave Judea and he had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with this woman. Brothers and sisters, friends, how long will you chalk up the things of your life as mere coincidence? You know, it's not by chance that God has put that coworker beside you at your job. God has positioned you precisely where he wants you to bring about his purposes. What we think is random, God sees as planned. What we see as delay, God says is appropriate. What we attribute as wasteful, God decrees as purposeful. 
Brothers and sisters, the minor details of your life are the major provisions of the Lord. And friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, it is not by chance that you're here right now hearing this message of what Jesus has for you. Jesus sets up all the circumstances of life with grand providential positioning. Second, notice a problematic request. A problematic request. So there Jesus sits. He's resting from his journey. When we read in verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now understand, this would have been unusual for a woman to come alone at that time of day to draw water. And that day, most women came in groups. And they wouldn't come midday during the heat. They would come in the early morning or late afternoon, evening, in the cooler parts of the day. So something is off from the start with this woman to be coming alone in the hottest part of the day. And we're going to see next week that given her past, she's likely alone because she's been ostracized and shamed by her community. We're also told that Jesus is alone. Look at verse 8. Because his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. So there the narrative is set up. Jesus is alone and the woman comes alone. Now understand, Jesus did not have to engage with this woman. Most would expect that he wouldn't. I mean, men would not speak openly to women in that time, especially when they're alone with them, especially if it's a Samaritan. You kidding me? It would have been perfectly normal for her to get the water, for Jesus to rest his eyes and just let the silence of the moment be left undisturbed. And kind of like two introverts in an elevator. You find your corner, I have mine, no eye contact, and we'll just hold our breath until this horrific ride is over. <laughs> so there they are, alone. So can you imagine, just for a moment with me, what it could have been like? Slight breeze, cloudless sky, scorching sun, Jesus is resting, the woman's drawing water, perhaps the pulley system on the well is the only sound making its squeaking noise from years of use. The woman's hands are calloused from day after day pulling on this rough rope and she pulls and she pulls and she pulls and her bucket finally comes up. She ties the rope off and Jesus breaks the silence. Verse 7, give me a drink. Perhaps it was in the form of a request. Give me a drink. Now that seems like a simple request. It is absolutely not a simple request. It is a problematic request. And she knows it. Verse 9, the woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's the problem. In fact, let me detail for you how big a problem this is. You got Judea and to the north you have Samaria. Both were under Roman rule. But for years, Samaritan and Jews still maintained years of animosity. To put it bluntly and most simply, the Jews hated the Samaritans because they considered them half-breeds. In the history of God's people, you had the 12 tribes of Jacob. The nation became divided. Ten tribes went north, called Israel. Two tribes went south, called Judah. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, we see King Omri of the north buys the land called Samaria, which he makes the capital of the northern kingdom. But then because of the people's sin, God sends in 722 BC, God sends Assyria to overthrow the northern kingdom. Most of the Israelites are shipped into exile, but the Israelites who are left there staying under Assyrian rule began to intermarry with the nations, which meant that they became a mixed race and began to practice the customs of these foreign nations and these pagan religions. So that the Israelites who married into other nations and faiths became known as the Samaritans. For the average Jew, he looked down on such people because he saw them as compromised. And for the years that followed, the hostility between Jews and Samaritans only increased. I mean, they had their own customs, their own beliefs, their own Pentateuch. They had their own temple. In fact, when God's people were trying to rebuild the temple after exile, the Samaritans said that they would help, but the Jews rejected them. So the Samaritans built their own rival temple. So for Jews, passing through Samaria was to pass unclean territory. It would even be unthinkable to stop and talk. Especially with a woman who is seen as perpetually unclean. It was said in the Mishnah, the, the document that kept the Jewish oral law, quote, that the daughters of Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle. And what was Jesus' request to the Samaritan? Can I have a drink? Now feel the shock of this. He's by himself talking to a woman, an unclean Samaritan woman, and he asks her for a drink and get this, he has to share her cup. He doesn't have anything to draw the water with himself. And so the implication is, can I share what you're drinking from? Now to feel the, the shock of this, let me move it a little bit closer to our generation and years past. It's 1955. And blacks and whites are segregated down to the detail. Whites have their restrooms and blacks have theirs. Whites have their public pools. Blacks have theirs. Each has their own space on the bus, their own housing, their own restaurants, their own waiting rooms, their own churches, their own schools. They are completely separate. Now fast forward a few years. Segregation's over and now the challenge is what? Integration. 
suddenly you have two nine-year-old boys. One is white and one is black and they're playing outside at recess. The white boy is with the white kids. The black boy is with the black kids. But now the teacher calls everyone inside. Recess is over and they all run in thirsty from playing. And they get in line at the water fountain. All the black boys are grouped together in the front. All the white boys are grouped together in the back. And gets to the very last black boy who takes the drink from the fountain. And now it's the first white boy's turn. And what does he do? He's been told his entire life, not after him you're not. Not after people like them, not after that race. Some of you grew up in this experience. Looking down on them, their ways, their talk, their culture. We don't hang out with them. We don't swim with them. We don't ride buses with them. We don't go to school with them. We don't eat with them. We don't go to church with them. We don't worship with them. They have their own building for that. Let them do it there. And as the boy stands in line at the water fountain, he hears the wave of his upbringing flooding his mind. And we certainly don't drink after them. We'd rather go thirsty. What does he do? He steps up and he presses his cheek against the fountain hardware like all kids do. The hardware that just received the cheek of the sweaty black boy. And he drinks the water. Shocking. Now we're a long way away from the 50s. Thank God. But brothers and sisters, friends, is the sentiment of that anywhere still close to your heart? And I pray if that's the case for any of you that the Spirit of God, if he reveals that to you, I'm not assuming it's on any of you, but if it's in any of you, if, it, if the Spirit of God reveals that in your heart, that by God's grace and power that you would repent and root out any sin of racism in your soul. Can you believe that Jesus would drink after this woman, after like them, after those people? The Samaritans. The problem here is separation. Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. We're, not, we're supposed to say separate. We're not supposed to share cups, which makes the simple request of give me a drink quite problematic. Third, notice her perplexed blindness. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus moves past her question of how are you asking me for a drink 
And he gives her this statement. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink and I'd give you living water. (laughs) And she has no idea. The separation of race, not an issue for Jesus. If you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink and I'd give it to you. I don't care that you're a Samaritan. I'd give living water for you. She doesn't get it. Now here's where she's perplexed and where she's blind. Look at what she says. She gives two objections. Number one, verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. And it was, over 100 feet. And second, where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? In other words, Jacob got water from this well for hundreds of years. And the people after him did too, and it worked just fine for them. He watered all his livestock from this well. But now you claim to have living water. Are you saying you're better than Jacob? Claiming to have better water than him? See, she's thinking, just like Nicodemus thought, only on a literal plane. You say you have living water, where is it? You don't even have a bucket. See, the biggest problem of separation this woman has to Jesus is not her race, but her blindness. Everyone else would focus on the separation of Jew and Samaritan. That's not her biggest problem. Her problem is she's blind to who Jesus is. She's perplexed by what he has to offer. She doesn't get that the water Jesus speaks of is highlighting a greater thirst in her life beyond literal thirst. Friends, unless God has made you his, this is your biggest problem before God today. Perplexed blindness, unable to see the glory of Jesus, the appeal of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus. You hear a message like this one and you're distracted by any and every question. Well, well, well what about this? And well, what about that? And just like the woman. How about we let Jesus worry about what bucket he's going to use? How about we let Jesus worry about how deep the well is? How about we let Jesus worry about offending Jacob? Do you want living water? Jesus says he'd give it to you. He comes to bridge the separation, not by any race or gender or social class, anything like that. He bridges the separation between your blindness and your sinful depravity and God's holiness and glory. And he bridges it by dying taking the punishment of sin so that if you, a sinner, would look at him and say, that's good for me, I want to trust in that, that I'll be saved by that, then you would be saved and he'd give you living water. But the woman is unsure. She says, are you greater than Jacob and all creation cries, yes, he is. Do you have better water? Yes, he does. To her, it seems like a lot for Jesus to overcome. Friend, are you unsure this morning? What keeps you from coming to Jesus? What keeps you from coming to Jesus? 
What objections do you have? What hesitations? What in your mind separates you from Jesus and makes you think Jesus won't bridge that gap? Jesus breaks through all the acceptable customs of this Jew-Samaritan relationship to reach this woman. Listen, if Jesus would come to a woman like this, he'll come to a person like you. He comes to the blind, he bridges the gap, he shows himself to be the one who will satisfy your greatest thirst. One author writes this, quote, if Christianity is a matter of grace, then when you come to church, you need to leave something at the door. Out there, what matters is is class and race and gender, moral performance, leave it all at the door. Jesus comes to the blind and says, I have living water. Number four, this is the fourth part. Notice a preeminent satisfaction. A preeminent satisfaction. Jesus providentially positions himself to engage with this woman. He's issued this problematic request. He confronts her perplexed blindness. And in confronting her, he holds out something in front of her. A preeminent satisfaction. Now remember, the woman has just asked Jesus if he's greater than Jacob. And Jesus doesn't even answer her directly. He shows her instead. It's like he says, you want to know if I'm greater? Look at verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water of Jacob will be thirsty again. But everyone, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. So you tell me who's greater. You come to this well and drink, you'll be coming back tomorrow. You drink my water to satisfy you for eternity. Halfway through this conversation with this woman, this is Jesus' culminating point thus far. Jesus provides a preeminent satisfaction for you over any other source. Now that's a stunning statement, but it's even more stunning when you realize where it's coming from. I'll give you living water. Listen in the Old Testament how God referred to the restoration of his people by using the metaphor of refreshing living water. Isaiah 12, 3 speaks of how the people will, in their restoration, draw water with joy from wells of salvation. In Isaiah 55, the call goes out from the prophet, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And if you have no money, come, buy and eat. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? He says, listen diligently to me, eat what is good, delight yourselves, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. Isaiah 44, 3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry land. I will pour my spirit upon the offspring. And hundreds of years later, Jesus is looking at a crowd in John 7, 37, and he says this, if anyone thirsts among you, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John tells us in 739, now he said this about the spirit. Now go back to the conversation with the woman. He says, you want to know if I'm greater than Jacob? You tell me. I have water, living water, the water that Isaiah referred to, water that will quench your spiritual thirst, waters from the wells of salvation that he promised to pour out onto his people to give the spirit. Am I greater than Jacob? (laughs) 
We're almost finished. But friend, I would ask you this. Where are you searching for satisfaction today and contentment? Are you searching for satisfaction in money? Possessions and clothes? Are you searching for contentment in sex? The way you look? Your retirement? Sports and food and power and promotions and comfort and ease and good health? My goodness, fill in the blank. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug out their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. My goodness, we're broken cisterns. We just run to whatever well we can find, seek to drink from it, hoping that it will satisfy us. And when we find a little bit of taste of satisfaction, man, we pour it down our throat and we plug every hole in our heart, hoping it won't leak. The problem is the well runs dry and we run out of plugs. George Sanders was a Hollywood actor who had everything one could supposedly want in life and yet he committed suicide. And before he did, he wrote a note showing the emptiness of self-satisfaction. Quote, I am committing suicide because I am bored. I feel I have lived long enough. I leave you all in your sweet little cesspool and I wish you luck. End quote. Oh friend, hear the destiny of the miserable life that seeks satisfaction in anything but Jesus. Every well you run to for contentment will dry up. Now I want to close with this final question and it's for you Christians in the room. Why do you and I wrestle with discontentment and dissatisfaction if we've drank from this well? I don't know about you, but almost on the daily, it's a fight to be satisfied in Jesus. Why? Oh yes, we're not yet in heaven where it will be perfect, but there's an answer in this text I want you to see. Look at the end of verse 14. Jesus speaks of this water. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Would you rather drink water from a stagnant pond or from a fresh spring? The satisfaction Jesus promises, he likens it to a spring and springs are not stagnant. They're constantly welling up it's a picture that calls you, believer, to wake up every single day choosing, will I go back to the spring? Will I drink from the spring once again to walk in the spirit, to put to death the deeds of the flesh? Will I go to the water of Jesus where I know there's satisfaction for me specifically today? Every day's a battle. But every day there's fresh living water for satisfaction. Don't forget, dear Christian, in the morning to drink from the spring.
What does Jesus have to offer this woman at the well? It's the same thing he offers for you. Preeminent satisfaction. Let's pray.